Today's message has been brought to you by Faith Family Church in Billings, Montana. For more information, visit faithfamilybillings.com. As we were ministering, as Pastor was ministering, this scripture stirred in my heart just to tie into what each of you gave there as a tongue. It's in 1 Peter 5. I'm going to read it out of the, trans- the uh, Passion Translation, and it's in verse 8. It says, be well balanced and alert because your enemy, the devil, roams around incessantly like a roaring lion looking for its prey to devour. Pastor Heidi talked about your voice, that you need to speak it out. What it says here is our adversary is like. It doesn't say he is. It says he stalks about like a roaring lion. He is a counterfeit. He is not the real thing. You realize that lions, the only time that they roar in the natural is to intimidate prey that they know is a threat. They don't roar when they know that they can instantly defeat the prey when it's weak and it's easy. The only time in the natural that a lion will roar is when he knows that there is a prey that he is trying to get or intimidate that is a real threat to them. And it says here that our adversary, the devil, stalks about, as it says in the New King James, as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's a counterfeit. He's not the real thing. And all he's doing is making noise trying to intimidate you. Because I read in my Bible that we are children of the lion of the tribe of Judah. We are the real lions. We are sons and daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We are sons and daughters of the lion. And when we open our voice, we are the ones who should be roaring with the power of the faith of God that has been planted in our hearts. So every time you open your voice, and it doesn't have to be loud. I'm not saying it's a decibel meter, that if you don't shout loud enough, it's not going to work. But I'm saying that every time that you open your mouth and you speak the word of God that you're taught, that in the realms of hell itself, they hear the roar of the lion of the tribe of Judah. They hear that one who has defeated death, hell, and the grave. They hear that one who went to hell and led a train of vanquished foes. They hear that one that whipped, stripped, and defeated them coming out of your mouth. In the Bible, when it talks about the sword of the Spirit, That word, rhema, spoken word, the sword of the spirit, actually means, I got this from Rick Renner and I love it, it actually means twice spoken word. God's word on your lips is that double-edged sword that pierces to the very division of soul and spirit, bones and marrow. It's the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. 
And so every time you open your mouth and you speak against situations and circumstances that are trying to raise their ugly head and defy what you know is the reality in your life, that you are seated in heavenly places, that you are a son or a daughter of the king of kings, that no weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. When you speak, you get to cut that sucker up. That double-edged sword is actually a gladius, is what it would have been referred to in that time. It is the sword of the Roman centurion or the Roman army, double-edged sword. It was not intended to slash. It was not intended to just wield about wildly. Actually, the Roman army used to make fun of other armies that they would fight because they were untrained in their eyes and they were unskilled with their sword. With the shield and all of their armor on, they would lock together as one unit and at the opportune moment, they would strike with precision, one blow, killing, done, and move on. They would literally stab, twist, turn, and empty the bowels of their adversaries. Just like that in a killing blow. That's the power of the word of God on your lips. A word in season, spoken as a child of the king. Spoken, the word of God on your lips. In one moment, you can change your circumstance. In one moment, with one word spoken that is enlightened and revealed, that rhema word of God in you can change a situation and a circumstance. In one moment. So be bold to speak. Be bold to roar. Be bold. Circumstances and situations do not get to define us. Amen? We get to rise above them. Hallelujah. My wife and I were studying on the way here, and she said something that will help me transition into where I want to start this morning. She said, man, I'm just, I'm so excited about studying on what I'm going to talk about today, which is the love of God. She said, the love of God is the only thing that cannot be separated from us. That not even the sword of the Spirit, the sharpest instrument in the world, that can get down in between bone and marrow, even modern te technology has to liquefy marrow to extract it out. It can't cut between bone and marrow. You have to go inside and draw it out. But even that, the sharpest instrument in the world, cannot separate us from the love of God. Open with me to Colossians, if you would, please. Colossians, verse 3, excuse me, chapter 3. Colossians, chapter 3. And we're going to start in verse 12. 
Again, for those of you who don't know, Pastor did an excellent job introducing me, but not. my name is Jeremiah Harris. I was born in Salt Lake City, Utah, hold no claim to it, was really glad that I moved when I was three to the wonderful mountains of North Carolina. That's where I was raised and uh, was called to Rama at a very early age and totally kicked against the will of God until after college and finally was obedient and went out in 2006. And I graduated in 2008 and I'm plugged in there. I actually work for Faith Library Publications, which is the uh, producing arm for books, CDs, DVDs of the ministry. I get the privilege to work with some of the massive accounts like Amazon and Ingram and different things to get the word of God all over the world. And so it's an awesome place to, to work and to be able to be there. And I met my beautiful wife, Heidi, there. She, at the time, I was teaching in the Singles 18 to 27 School of the Bible class, and I was actually the only teacher at that time. And uh, she came to, to visit somebody that I had as a guest minister, and her mom came to a uh, camp meeting at the time. And afterwards, she didn't realize on the way home that she liked my preaching and was praying for blessings on my life and that God would just bless Jeremiah. He's got such a good heart. And she was praying her daughter into my life. So glory to God. She listened to God, and I got the blessings. I reaped the blessings of my wonderful and talented wife, Heidi. So this morning, Colossians 3, verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love. Verse 14 from the Passion Translation for love is supreme and must flow through each of these virtues. Love becomes the mark of true maturity. Amplified, verse 14. And above all these, put on love. Enfold yourself with the bond of perfectness which binds everything together completely in ideal harmony. And finally, Message translation. And regardless of what else you put on, wear love. It's your basic all-purpose garment. Never be without it. Let me ask you a question this morning as we begin. Did any of you have difficulty remembering to put your pants on this morning before you came to church? If not, we would have known the moment you walked in the door. You know, I can't say that uh, that's something that my parents lacked in the ability to train me in was to wear clothes. But it says here that the love of God, it's our basic all-purpose garment, never be without it. Let me ask you again, if we have, as we see here, to put on love, then doesn't it seem like it must take a little bit of effort, that it's something that we have to focus on. 
I, I mean, honestly, if love was tattooed on my body, I wouldn't have to think about putting it on, just like I wouldn't have to think about putting on my shirt. But obviously here, the Apostle Paul talking to the church at Colossae is saying above all, above all these other things, he's talking about forgiveness, he's talking about all sorts of things if you read through here. He said above all these things, put on love. Take the effort to consciously put on love. To live life in the fullness that God intended, we must be clothed and ready with something that I've been studying recently, our everyday carry. Anybody know what EDC is in here? Any of you men know what everyday carry is? Every day, I carry certain things on my person. Right now, I've got a knife, I've got my light, I've got my keys, I've got my cell phone, I've got my ID, I've got all of that, and throughout the day, there's a few other things at certain times that I carry with me all the time. I don't leave the house without it. There's tools that I may or may not need at this exact moment, but I want to make sure that I have them on. If we look back at the amplified version of this verse, it says that love is the bond of perfectness. It binds everything together completely in ideal harmony. It's our all-purpose garment. It ties everything else together, and you wouldn't want to wear the armor of God without it. Let me ask you something. Anybody ever seen a representation of the armor of God? I would not want to wear the armor of God on bare skin. That would chafe your hide like nobody's business. And I just, no, all sweaty and nasty, and no, not interested. But I want to put on love because it is that thing which ties everything together and it makes everything else work. So today, I want to do our best to look into three aspects of the love of God. God's love for us, God's love in us, and God's love through us. So let's look first into God's love toward us, to us, or for us. Let's look at John 3.16, please, for me. I can guarantee everybody in this Holy Ghost-filled Word Church knows this scripture. But as we look at scripture, remember that there is never a time that you can have everything that there is to know about a scripture. There's always more revelation. There's always more revelation. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The greatest expression of love that has ever been given is listed right here. God so loved you and me. Think about it. The God of the universe, the creator of all things, loved you. He loves me. Far too often we look at this and we're like, yeah, 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 God loves me, I know, whatever, let's go on, let's get to something more. 
But this is so important. And the other thing I want to bring out here is not only that God loves you enough to send his son. Ah, thank you, Holy Spirit. Pastor Sean and Heidi have their son here. Pastor Sean, can you honestly say that you would willingly give your son as a sacrifice for somebody else? No. You couldn't think of it. It's beyond anything that we could imagine to give our children away for somebody else. But God did it because he knew what was on the other side, and that was you. He loved you that much that he sowed his own son into this earth knowing that he would go through everything that he went through because he wanted the fruit of you. He loved you that much. And then also, I want to bring verse 17 out here a little bit. I'm going to read this out of the voice translation really quick. I love the way it says it. Verse 16, for God expressed his love for the world in this way. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not face everlasting destruction, but will have everlasting life. Here's the point. God didn't send his son into the world to judge it. Instead, he is here to rescue a world headed towards certain destruction. If God wanted you to be condemned, he would have left you the way that you were. He didn't have to do anything. So as we go through this, I want you to remember that condemnation is not of God. We sang about it this morning. Shame tries to come and take our name, but shame is not of God. If you look at 1 Corinthians 13, and we'll look at this later, how it explains love, the Passion Translation says, love does not traffic in shame. Shame is of the devil. In Revelation, it calls our adversary the devil, the accuser of the brethren. That's us. He loves to accuse us to each other. He loves to accuse you to your wife and you to your kids. He loves to accuse you to your mother-in-law and father-in-law. He loves to accuse. That's what he does. And he also loves to accuse God to you, saying God really doesn't love you. How could he love you? You don't realize what you've done. You know, if God knew what you did, there's no way he could love you. And when I hear stuff like that from my adversary, the devil, if I'm walking in the light of what I know in the word, I just laugh. Because I know that God is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the one who knows all, that he is present in my past. He is present in my future. He's already there. He knows everything that I ever will do or ever have done, and he chose to take the weight of the sin of the world upon himself. Think about that a minute. I can't imagine bearing all of the idiotic, lame brain things that I have done in my life by myself. Multiply that times every person that has ever lived, will ever live, could have ever lived, all throughout all eternity, past, present, or future. He took all of that on himself and he carried it so you don't have to. There is no shame in love. There is no condemnation in love. And there is no fear in love. Romans 8, 32. We're also going to read this out of the Passion Translation. 
You guys are just pulling it out of me. This is such a place of freedom. Hallelujah. I love it. Romans 8.32, Passion Translation. So let me ask you this. Some of us may say, well, yeah, you told me God loves me in John 3.16. That's good. I, I understand that. But how do I know? How do I know he loves me? How do I know? Some of us love to kind of go in our own little headspace when we're talking to God and be like, God, would you just prove this to me? Just prove to me that you love me, please. Just prove to me that you love me. Great, I will. Romans 8, 32. For God has proved his love by giving us his greatest treasure, the gift of his son. I'm going to say something to you, and I want you to hear it. God paid for you the greatest price that has ever been paid for anything ever. It says in the world, word that he didn't give gold or diamonds or rubies or earthly treasure because it could not compare to the greatness and the richness of the gift of his son. He could have given galaxies he could have given solar systems. He could have given planets. He could have given all the wealth of the world. But it wasn't enough for the value that God found in each and every one of you. The only thing that he could give that matched your worth was his son, his greatest treasure. He paid for you the greatest price that has ever been paid for anything ever. And in that moment, as we read here, he proved his love for you. I love how it continues here, and it says, and since God freely offered him up as a sacrifice for us all, he certainly, 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 no question here, this is not something that you can just say, well, maybe he will, maybe he won't. No, he certainly won't withhold from us anything else he has to give. Ladies and gentlemen, what is a house? What is a car? What is getting out of debt? What is healing? What is deliverance? What is freedom compared to what he paid for you? And when we're convinced of that, we walk in freedom like we never have before. When we're convinced of that, miracles happen. Every miracle in the Bible was rooted in God's love for his son. That's how he was able to be moved with compassion and heal all their sick. Think about that. When you read in the Bible time and time and time again, prime example, when he fed the 5,000 and the 6,000, that was just talking about men. Sorry, ladies, but in the Old Testament, they didn't count you or you kids. But anyway, so it was way more than just 5,000. He fed all of them. 
but just a little bit before, it says that he was tired and he wanted to get away. He had just faced a situation and a circumstance in the loss of John the Baptist, his relative. And he wanted to get away and spend time with God. And then they came up to him, found him, and it says that he was moved with compassion and he healed all their sick. Rough estimate, that's 10,000 people that he healed all their sick. In just a church this size, I guarantee there's some people that are fighting some, th- some things in their body that need healing. Can you imagine how many people needed the ministering touch of Jesus in 10,000 people? And he was moved with the compassion and the love of God so much so that he healed all their sick time and time and time again. Jesus would not let sickness stay. He wouldn't let death stay. He wouldn't let lack stay. The fig tree. He's walking through, looks at the fig tree. If you study out the fig tree, when blossoms and leaves are there, fruit comes first, then comes leaves, then comes blossoms, and when it's blossoming, fruit is ripe, time to eat. So what that tree represented in the life of Jesus Christ, he was hungry, he wanted to eat, he saw it afar off, and he said, man, I'm going to get some figs tonight. Come on, boys, I see a fig tree. And he walks up, and what is that fig tree shouting in his face? Just like the devourer, the accuser, our adversary, the devil, who thinks he's a roaring lion, it's shouting in his face, saying, Lack, you're not going to eat. There's not enough. You're going to go hungry. Jesus didn't leave that tree sitting there. He said, no one is going to eat fruit of you here on, and I curse you at the very root. It didn't have fruit on it. Jesus is not stupid. I mean, honestly, I've read that, and I'm like, God, why do you got to be mean to the little tree? It's just doing its business. Why you got to kill the tree, Jesus? It's because the fruit that it was bearing was lack, and he could not allow lack to stay in his life because lack is from the devil. And when our adversary was roaring in his face saying, you will not have enough, he said, that fruit, no more. You will not bear lack anymore. And at that moment, When they came back, his disciples are like, Jesus, this tree that you talked to yesterday, it's dead. What? And he says, it's no big deal. You have the same faith. And if you speak to this mountain, that area where they were in, there would have been a mountain off in the distance that they could see, something, a geographical area they would have known very well. So he could have simply... I I wasn't there, so I don't know exactly what happened, but tree sitting over here, and he goes, that's not a big deal. You can do the same thing. Anything is possible to him who believes, and if you speak to that mountain and just pointed to it and say, be cast into the sea, it has to obey you. Because 
of the love of God in him. First John 3, 1. First John 3, 1 and 2 says, look with wonder. Passion translation, look with wonder at the depth of the Father's marvelous love that he has lavished on us. He has called us and made us his very own children. The reason the world doesn't recognize us, excuse me, the reason the world doesn't recognize who we are is that they didn't recognize him. Verse 2, beloved, we are God's children right now. However, it is not yet apparent what we will become, but we do know that when he, when it is made finally visible, we will be just like him, for we will see him as he truly is. Real quick, I want to look at this word, beloved. I don't know about you, but when I read my Bible, I see that word a lot. And I'm like, oh, what does that mean? I know I be loved, but what does it mean? So let's look at it. It's more powerful than you think. The apostles and the writers of the New Testament were so convinced about the love of God that they used this word throughout the New Testament. This word is the Greek word agapeo. It's from the root agape, the God kind of love. But what is so important is the tense used in this verse. And almost in every place that you see that word translated by King James, New King James, and others, the word beloved. It's because it is a perfect tense. It is saying, God has loved us in the past. He still loves us in the present. And he will always love us in the future. Beloved, as I would say it, is you are perfectly loved past, present, future. So every time we read that, don't think this is some weird word that the King James put in here and I don't know what beloved is. I mean, honestly, I love my wife, but I don't commonly walk up to her and say, beloved, shall we go to dinner today? <laughs> she would be like, what are you doing? What is wrong with you? But there's so much power in this word, and it was so important to the writers of the New Testament that this word is found as a greeting when believers were talking about each other. They continually looked at you and said, you are perfectly loved by God, past, present, and future. You are perfectly loved by God, past, present, and future. In the greeting to the church, in Acts, it was used to refer to Barnabas and Paul. In Romans, the entire church at Rome was called beloved and individual believers. First and Second Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Philemon, Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter, First John, Third John, Jude. These are just a few of the examples that I was able to find by doing a quick search for this word. It was so permeated into the culture of the early church that they would walk up to each other and say, you are perfectly loved by God. They put so much emphasis on his love that it became used as a greeting. 
It should be so with us that we are so convinced that God loves me and God loves you that love himself loves me. Love is not an abstract idea. Love is not something that's just off in the ether. And ladies and gentlemen, love is not a feeling. It's a choice. And it's a person. First John says, God is love. You cannot divorce love from any other characteristic of God because he is love. So anytime we read about anything in this word, we can know love himself loves me. God himself loves me. And I'm convinced. 2 Corinthians 5.14 I love this, out of the Passion Translation. For it is Christ's love that fuels our passion and holds us tightly because we are convinced, again, convinced that he has given his life for all of us. This means that all died with him. The Amplified says Christ's love urges and impels us. King James Version says, Christ's love constrains us. New King James, Christ's love compels us. New living, Christ's love controls us. CEV, we are ruled by Christ's love. And the message says, he, excuse me, his love has the first and last word in everything we do. The voice you see, the controlling force in our lives is the love of the anointed. 1 John 4, 7 is where it talks about God is love. But it also says in verse 16, 1 John 4, 16. Passion Translation says, we have come into an intimate experience with God's love, and we trust in the love he has for us. The New King James says, we have known and believed his love. Knowing and believing the love that God gives to us and has shown toward us gives us boldness. Here in verse 12, it talks about there is no fear in love because perfected love casts out all fear. Perfected love doesn't mean that you're perfect at love. It means that you're growing. If you're growing in love, then that drives out all fear. Perfect love, no fear. If you know, think about this. If you know that you're perfectly and infinitely loved by the God of of the universe, the Lord of the angel armies, the first and the last, the one that stands outside of time itself and reaches into time to touch your life because he loves you that much, the one that has already defeated all of hell in the grave, the one that the apostle Paul said, oh death, where is your victory? Oh grave, where is your sting? The Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13, the very love chapter that defines all of love. And that love was powerful enough to take the Apostle Paul 
The love of God and being convinced of his love was to take the Apostle Paul, who was one who had letters to go and kill Christians and believers, and was so mired in religiosity that he thought he needed to kill people who knew Jesus. And he had a radical experience on the road to Damascus, and then he goes from that state where he's ready to kill Christians to where he faced death daily. And he's like, the love of God is so important that we have to be there. Let's go to uh, Ephesians. Hallelujah. Ephesians 3, 14, amplify. With our time constraints today, we're only going to get through his love to us, but that's the most important, and we're going to bring it out here. Amplified, the Apostle Paul, praying for the church at Ephesus, says, For this reason, seeing the greatness of this plan by which you are built together in Christ, I bow my knees before the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that the Father from whom all fatherhood takes its title and derives, excuse me, that Father from whom all fatherhood takes its title and derives its name. May he grant you out of the rich treasury of his glory to be strengthened and reinforced with mighty power in your inner man by the Holy Spirit himself, love himself, God himself, indwelling your innermost being and personality. May Christ, through faith, your faith, actually dwell and settle down, abide, and make his permanent home in your hearts. Here's the thing I want to bring out. May you be rooted deep in love and founded securely on love. Our roots need to be in love. The voice translation says, may this soil of the love of God be the firm foundation upon which your entire life is built. Rooted and grounded in love. And so if we're rooted deep in love and we're founded securely on love, what does that give us? That you may have the power to be strong, to apprehend and grasp with all the saints, God's devoted people, the experience of that love. Previously, when we read in 1 John, it says we have known and we have experienced this love and we're convinced of this love. And here it says that this is the root and they want us to experience it. Really come to know practically, verse 19, through experience yourselves the love of Christ which far surpasses mere knowledge without experience. Hallelujah. It's not just head knowledge, but that we may be filled through all our being unto the fullness of God and may have the richest measure of the divine presence and become a body holy, filled, and flooded with God himself. If you allow yourself to be rooted and grounded in the love of God, if you allow that to be the passion that fuels everything that you do, if you allow the love of God to be that thing which every decision, every choice that we make is from a place of love, from a place that God loves me, then we have freedom 
to experience that love each and every day. We have freedom to become a body wholly filled and flooded with God himself. Holy, filled, and flooded with love himself. It also says in the word of God that God is light, so that means we can be holy, filled, and flooded with light himself. Do you know that if you were able to pull up 500 rail cars full of darkness to this room and pump it in with the lights on, you would never even know because darkness does not even compare to light. Fear doesn't even compare to love. Depression doesn't even compare to love. Sickness doesn't even compare to love. Lack doesn't even compare to love. And when we're rooted in his love, we can become a body that is filled and flooded with God himself, love himself, light himself. Let's turn to Romans 8. I'm going to think I'm going to close with this. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. How convinced were the apostles and the prophets and those who wrote the New Testament about this love? I always do this to myself. I put way more notes than I need. Romans 8. Pardon me a moment while I find that in my notes. And I think we're going to start in verse 21 or 22. Romans 8, Passion Translation. Verse 28. Romans 8, 28. So we are convinced that every detail of our lives is continually woven together for good. For we are his lovers who have been called to fulfill his designed purpose. For he knew all about us before we were born, and he destined us from the beginning to share in the likeness of his son. This means the son is the oldest among a vast family of brothers and sisters who will become just like him. Having determined our destiny ahead of time, he called us to himself and transferred his perfect righteousness to everyone he called. And those who possess his perfect righteousness, he co-glorified with his son. Verse 31, so what does all this mean? If God has determined to stand with us, tell me, who could ever stand against us? Again, it says in verse 32, for God has proved his love by giving us his greatest treasure, the gift of his son. And since God freely offered him up as a sacrifice for us all, he certainly won't withhold anything else he has to give. Who then would dare to accuse those whom God has chosen in love to be his who then would dare to accuse Faith Family Church and every person sitting in this room? God himself is the judge. 
who has issued the final verdict over them not guilty. If you're standing right now, if you were standing right now in the court of heaven, and the accuser of the brethren walked in with everything about your past. He had a perfect record of everything you've done. And he laid it out before the court of heaven. God, the judge, would hear it, so to speak. And then he would get his gavel and he would say, Not guilty! I don't care what you throw against them, accuser of the brethren. Not guilty. So let me say one thing here as well. God himself is the judge. I am not. I do not have the right to judge. I heard this recently from Pastor Keith Moore. He said, I'm not the judge and now is not the time. We'll see here that he's not counting up the sins of the worlds against them. The only thing that he is looking at is whether or not they've accepted Christ. So guess what? You don't have to make a call when somebody says, did you hear what so-and-so did? How can, can you imagine that a believer would do this? Stop. I'm not the judge. Now's not the time. I don't have to make a call. He's the judge. I'm called to love. Don't let your ears be trash cans for the gossip that comes through the church sometimes by people that are a little bit deceived and though they may mean well, could use to just put a watch over their mouth. You realize if you put a watch over your mouth, you can't talk and nobody understands what you're saying. Sometimes we need to do that to ourselves and just say, nope, I'm going to shut up because now's not the time and I'm not the judge. There will come a day when we stand before the court of heaven, but now's not the time because he is waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. Who then, verse 34, is left to condemn us? Certainly not Jesus, the anointed one, for he gave his life for us. And even more than that, he conquered death and is now risen, exalted, and enthroned on God's right hand. So how could he possibly condemn us since he's continually praying for our triumph? Listen, listen, how could he condemn us? He is seated at the right hand of majesty on high right now, praying for your triumph. All of heaven is standing with you in agreement saying, I know the plan that God has for you. I know the future that God has for you. I'm praying. I'm interceding. I'm standing that you would triumph, that you would walk in the victory that I have given you. Who could ever divorce us from the endless love of God's anointed one? Absolutely no one. For nothing in the universe has the power to diminish his love toward us. The universe is a really big place. But God said nothing in the entire universe has the power. But, 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 but wait, 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 wait a minute, Jeremiah. What about cancer? Nothing in all the universe 
What about all this debt? Nothing in all the universe. What about all my mistakes? Nothing in all the universe. Get out of your head. Listen to the word of God. The accuser is the one that says you're not good enough. The accuser is the one that says that this circumstance or situation or thing that you have done is too great. God is greater. The greater one lives inside of us. And the reason that he said greater and not bigger or larger or more awesome or more powerful is because on the scales of eternity, and I know sometimes pastors get this wrong, but on a scale, if it's heavier, it goes down. So that's why I'm going to do that, just so you know. On a scale with two sides, a tipping scale, if it's heavier, it goes down. Okay? But on the scale of eternity, lack, confusion, sin, fear, worry, depression, sickness, disease, hopelessness, anything can be placed on the scale of eternity. And all you have to do is say, Jesus, boom, greater, 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 greater. The greater one is in you. Romans 5, 5 says that he has poured his love into our hearts. It's not a small thing. It's not a little thing. It's not something to just laugh at. It's a mighty Niagara, an endless resource rooted in heaven itself that you can tap into at any moment. And if you'll open those floodgates of love himself, there's nothing in this world that can stand against you. No circumstance, no situation. Mom, I love you. This is not pointed at you. No in-laws. <laughs> Nobody who's a little bit difficult. Nobody who gets under your skin. Brother Hagen had a phrase that he used to say, in the, and it's in the Love, Love the Way to Victory, the book. People would come to him all the time and say, why don't you ever say something to these people that talk about you and get on and write things about you that aren't true? One time in specific, someone came to him and just railed on him and read him the riot act because he wasn't interpreting the word of God properly. And another minister came up and said, man, he really told you off, didn't he? And he goes, no, he didn't. He goes, what? He goes, I stopped listening the moment that I thought that there was a possibility that I could be offended. He said, because love takes no offense. Love takes no account of a suffered wrong. So the moment that I knew there could have been a suffered wrong, I stopped listening. I took no account and I set it aside. I forgave them ahead of time knowing that there's a possibility today that someone could come to me with something that would cause me to get in offense, that would cause me to be in unforgiveness. And I said, nope. Premeditated forgiveness, no matter what you do to me, God's love in me is greater. So I'm planning ahead of time. Bring it, devil. Bring everything you got because I've got a reservoir of the love of God inside of me that doesn't even compare to what you have. It's so much greater. 
Do your best to try to offend me. Do your best to try to get me hurt. Do your best to take me out because I'm going to take that sword of the Spirit and the love of God that is within me and I'm going to cut you up all day long. Nothing in the universe has the power to diminish his love. Troubles, pressures, problems are unable to come between us and heaven's love. What about persecution? Deprivations, dangers, and death threats. Gentleman who gave a word this morning, a vision that was given to him about government going around and taking stuff. What about persecution? No. For they are all impotent to hinder omnipotent love. Omnipotent love. That means all powerful is in me. And here again, Paul says, even though it is written all day long, we face death threats for your sake. We're considered as nothing, merely sheep for the slaughter. Yet even in the midst of all these things, we triumph over them all. For God has made us to be more than conquerors. That word more than conquerors is the Greek word hooper nikos. It's not just more, it's exceedingly, abundantly beyond all you could ask or think. Sorry for all you Montana people, but I'm a fan of the Alabama Crimson Tide. It's just a fact. And from the mountains of North Carolina where I used to live, there's a little college right next to where I was raised called Western Carolina University. It's where my dad went to school. It's a pretty small college. But recently, in the past 10 years, they got on the Alabama Crimson Tide schedule. And the first time that the Western Carolina University Catamounts played the Alabama Crimson Tide, it was a Hooper Nikos. They started off with the first string and made three touchdowns in the first three minutes. They put in the second string and made three touchdowns in the next three minutes. They put in the third string and they made five more touchdowns and Western Carolina didn't even make a field goal. The final score was something along the lines of 75 to nothing. That is a Hooper Nikos. And that is the conquering force that is in you that is more than a conqueror. And what has made us more than a conqueror? His demonstrated love is our glorious victory over everything. Verse 38, so now, now, the Apostle Paul, now I live with the confidence, confidence. This is boldness. This is the boldness that walks into the very throne room of God and says, Father, I know you love me and I need this. I wouldn't want to because I pray for our president currently, but I don't really like him. But um, I wouldn't be able to walk into the office of the president and sit down and have a conversation and say, I need this. I don't have the right. I wouldn't be able to walk into the office of kings and just walk right in and sit down. 
But we have the authority as more than conquerors with his love to have the boldness and the confidence to walk down and sit right at the feet of Jesus in his very lap, the God of the universe, and say, Father God, I need this. Or Father God, I just want to love on you. Father God, I know you love me. I just want to spend time with you. What boldness, what confidence, and it comes from knowing we're loved. Again, Paul says, I'm convinced that his love will triumph over death, life's troubles, fallen angels, dark rulers in heavens, in the heavens, and there is nothing in our present or future circumstances that can weaken his love. There is no power above us or beneath us, no power that could ever be found in the universe that can distance us from God's passionate love, which is lavished upon us through our Lord Jesus, the anointed. One. Nothing, 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 nothing. Cancer can't separate us. Debt can't separate us. Eviction can't separate us. Fear can't separate us. Worry can't separate us. So today I encourage you to become convinced. Be just like the church in the early days. Talk about it all the time. Because love is the foundation from which all things grow. Every miracle that is needed is found in love. Recently, as I began studying this more and more, I've taught on this in years past. And I started in 1 Corinthians 13 with the love scripture. And I taught on it a bunch, and I got some great stuff from Rick Renner. I encourage you to get Rick Renner's book, The Love Test. It's fantastic. We don't have time to go over it today, but it's awesome. And I encourage you to get that. Can you grab those books? I want to give them out too. Thank you, Herb. But I encourage you to think about it, talk about it all the time. Because I started there and I began to teach on it regularly. And I heard it actually from, go ahead and just pick people, hand those out to them. I want to give them to some people. Thank you, Herb. I trust you. You're led by the Holy Spirit. I started studying there. On 1 Corinthians 13, and then I had been away from it for a while, and some of my fellow teachers, the teachers who are under me as lead teacher in school of the Bible, one of them said, I just love every time that Jeremiah teaches on 1 Corinthians 13 because I get some more out of it about the love of God. And it brought me back to something that God had said over me years and years ago. I was in a prayer time when I was in college with one of my friends, just praying things out. And I have to admit, it was kind of weird what he said, because he was like, man, he said, I, I was divorced before, but now I'm not, and God had me go get a wedding ring and put it on my finger, because that's for my future wife. And I was like, that's cool. And he said, and God gave me a new name, like in Revelation. And I was like, do you go by that now? <laughs> I mean, did you change your name? What's going on? And so it was kind of off the wall a little bit, but I said, Lord, is there something in this? And he said, I'm not going to change your name, but if you seek me, I'll give you the focus of your ministry. I said, all right. Father, what is this? Spent some time in prayer. In the beginning, before I was born, actually, my name came from the prophet Jeremiah. It was prophesied over my mom while she was pregnant, but not still showing that as the prophet Jeremiah 
was known in his mother's womb, so will your son be, and he will do great exploits for the kingdom. So that was part of my legacy. And then as I began to study this out, God said, you're going to be like the Apostle John. You're going to be known as the Apostle of Love, and love will be the focus of your ministry. I truly wholeheartedly believe that as he has begun to stir this in me, man, I've got, I've got a, hallelujah, I have a passion for ministry. I have a passion for teaching. I have a passion for the things of God and the word of God like I never have before in these past six months as I've begun to study out the love of God and get my roots down deeper into it. I had it before. It's not that I didn't know it and I had it before, but as I began to study this out and pray it out, God told me very specifically that this last great move of God has to be rooted in the love of God because we're going to face things that we've never faced before. We're going to face people that we've never faced before. We're going to face opposition that we've never faced before. We're going to face attacks like we've never faced before. And the only thing that can hold us firmly is being rooted and grounded in his love. And from that is going to spring all of the miracles and manifestations that we need to prove to the world that God is real. So I encourage you, talk about it, read about it, think about it, meditate on it. Just, I've got a Bible app on my phone, and I went and searched love. Found a whole bunch of scriptures on it. Man, there's so much in there about his love. The message of reconciliation is fueled by love. That scripture that we read, that it fuels us and holds us tightly, you go right down into it and it says, this is the ministry of reconciliation that we have been called to be ambassadors to go share with the world. It's fueled by love. It's the root. It's the core. As I began to study this, I began to see in my heart a tree that roots had grown down into, and, and as the Lord showed it to me in a vision, it was a giant ball of liquid light and liquid love. And it was massive, bigger than anything I had ever seen. And he said, as your roots grow down into this, just like the roots of the tree, that the very love and light and life of God will flow through every vein and pore and synapse and sinew of your body till you become a body wholly filled and flooded with love himself, light himself, God himself. And then just like Jesus and others, just like Peter, that all they have to do is brush you and they're healed like that because you're so full of the light and the love, and the life of God. There was a, a test that they did years ago. It was called a biodome experiment, where they planted all kinds of things in this perfect environment where nothing could ever go wrong. And after the trees got to a certain height, they just fell over. They're like, what in the world? They realized that they didn't factor in the wind. There will be an opposition to you growing your roots down into love. But the wind, the opposition causes a tree to dig its roots in deeper so it becomes stronger. Situations and circumstances, when they come against the love of God, all it does is make you stronger. All it does is have you grow those roots down deeper into the fact that love himself loves me. And that love is the fuel 
the driving force and the passion from which I live my life and every miraculous thing flows. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen today. If you would like more information about Faith Family Church, including service times and location, visit faithfamilybillings.com.